Let's pray together. Jesus, we should be reminded of your command to come before you and to your word as children, seeking to understand and to believe this great love that you have for us. And so, Lord, we want to come today not as masters of your word, but as those who are coming to learn from you. May, Lord, I be able to proclaim your word truthfully. And may your word, Lord, meet us right where we're at. And may it bear much fruit in our lives. God, if anything I say this morning is not of you and is not your word, may it be quickly forgotten. For, Lord, your word is life, and that is what we need. Bless our sermon this morning. Anoint my lips. And may you also anoint our ears to hear and to obey. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you. I'm going to talk about why that is today. Before we do, I want to just uh, tell you a story about a guy um, named Rick Riley. Rick Riley is a, a columnist for Sports Illustrated magazine. And he tells this story about a time that he was with his 14-year-old son. And this is what he writes. He said, We were lying on our backs on the grass in the park next to our hamburger wrappers, just watching the clouds loiter overhead. And all of a sudden, my son asked me, Dad, why are we here? And this is what I said. Son, I've thought a lot about it. And I don't think it's all that complicated. And then from there, Rick Riley goes on for several minutes, giving this really detailed and profound account of what he believes we're here for and what our purpose is. And, and much of it, relates to sports, as we might expect from a sports reporter. And while what he says certainly isn't from a Christian perspective, it's very beautiful and poetic in many ways. And at the end of this long existential monologue that he gives to his son, he turns to him and he says, does that answer your question, son? And his son responds, not really, dad. What I meant is, why are we here when mom said to pick her up 40 minutes ago? It's a classic moment in parenting. I'm sure many of you can relate. Why are we here? Why are we here? Now, that's a question I want to pose for us this morning. Now, on the one hand, I'm not asking it in quite as existential of a way as Rick Riley thought his son was asking the question like, why do we exist? But in some ways, I, I am asking that question. But more specifically, what I want to ask the question, why are we here, is to ask, what are we doing right here, in this place, with these people, doing what we're doing? Why are we here this morning? Two Sundays ago, I preached about what the essence of worship is. And I said that it's essentially four things. It's a response to God's revelation. It is adoration of God. It's allegiance to God. And it's sacrifice to God. All aspects of our lives of worship can be characterized in those terms. And if they can't, then something's messed up with our worship, I would say. 
Now, today and the next few Sundays, what I want to do is to go deeper in this topic of worship. And as you're no doubt aware, uh, worship has several dimensions to it. It's not just something that we do individually. It's something we do corporately. And it's not just something we do corporately. It's something we do individually. And while we'll, we'll get to the individual dimension in a couple of weeks, what I want to do today and next Sunday is to focus on this corporate dimension, particularly what it looks like and, and why it is that we come together as a body of Christ, especially on Sundays, in order to worship. The question for next Sunday is, how do we worship corporately? Like, what does it look like and, and why? But the question for today is, why do we come together as a group at all? Why are we here? Consider this. It is possible for us by ourselves to enter into the essence of worship. Isn't it? If the essence of worship is responding to God's revelation, adoring Him, expressing our allegiance to Him, and making sacrifices to Him, aren't those things that we could do on our own? Do we even need God's people? Why are we here this morning? This morning, what I want to say emphatically, as emphatically as I can, is that there are good biblical reasons why worshiping corporately is an essential and indispensable part of following Christ. Now, in order to make this case for corporate worship to you, I want to share with you three simple reasons this morning why we worship corporately. The first, and by far the most important reason, is this. We worship corporately for God. Pretty simple, I know. Let me explain what I mean. True and authentic worship has to have God at the center. We would all agree with that, right? If someone else is at the center, then it's not really worship of God, it's just worship of whoever or whatever's at the center, right? But since worship exists for God, worship then must have God at its center. Part of what it means to have God at the center is that we worship him on his terms and not ours. In other words, we don't get to create what God wants for worship. It's what God wants, not what we want. One of the things we need to understand from the scriptures about what God wants in our worship is that God loves it for his people to gather corporately. He loves it. He commands it. He wants it. Since the very beginning, what God has been doing is calling people, not just as individuals, but as groups, to worship Him and to be in relationship with Him. In fact, you can make the case that, that no individual is called in isolation for isolation, but they're always called out of groups for a group, namely God's people. And so throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, corporate worship is assumed. It's the assumption. Well, what I mean is that, that people in the nation of Israel or in the early church, they simply weren't asking the question that I've posed for you this morning. Can't we just worship God on our own? They weren't asking it. They expected, rightfully so, that 
Worshiping God meant a communal experience because after all, salvation in the covenant was communal. There was no salvation apart from the covenant community. In the Old Testament, God established the patterns of corporate worship for Israel. We can see this in the law. There were feasts and holy seasons to take place in Jerusalem where all the people would gather. The reading and the teaching of the Torah was to take place in public for all to hear. It was pretty necessary since we didn't have our, or they didn't have their, their own personal copies of the Torah. Ritual prayer was something that was shared together with the people's leaders. The giving of tithes and offerings and sacrifices were to take place at the temple together. The psalms, which are the songs of God's people, they were written for the choirs of the faithful to sing together. And thus, it's no surprise that as the Lord says in Isaiah 43, verse 21, you are my chosen people, corporately, not just individuals. You are my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they together might declare my praise. That's God's purpose. Not a bunch of separate individuals, but a people. In the new covenant, the, the communal aspect of worship is unchanged. There's continuity. You see, Jesus' ministry, it wasn't just to individuals, but to groups. He called a cohort of 12 disciples to follow him. He taught the crowds. And ultimately, Jesus died for not just individuals, but for a world. While it's true that Jesus loves every individual he's made, his purposes are first and foremost communal, corporate. We see this theme carried out in the letters of the New Testament. Just before uh, Jesus ascends in the book of Acts, he tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, right? And then on that day of Pentecost, 10 days later, where do we find them? We don't find them in their separate homes, doing their separate things as individuals. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 says, they were all together in one place. Not a coincidence. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles as we know. And after being filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up and he preaches this glorious sermon about the gospel. And after hearing it, 3,000 people in the crowd that had gathered believed in Christ. And through these events, what happened? The church was born. The church. Not a bunch of Christian individuals, but a church. See, the Greek word for church, ekklesia, it means assembly, or even more literally, those who have gathered together. Inherent in what this word means, church, means the gathering. You can't be the church without the gathering. And thus, not surprisingly, the early church lived as a community. After Peter's Pentecost sermon, we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. All of that is corporate. And throughout the New Testament, we, we find a variety, almost more to count, more than we can count, a, a variety of metaphors for the church. And each of those metaphors, they indicate plurality, not singularity. For example... Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 to 5, 
For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. In other places, the church is called God's flock, God's building, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and so on and so forth. And all of these are corporate designations. One of the downsides of the English language is that we can't tell the difference between a plural you and a singular you because they're both spelled the same way. So when we read the New Testament as English readers, we just don't know which yous are singular and which yous are plural unless we're looking closely at context. But I can tell you as Americans, we default to the singular. We think they're talking to us as an individual and not to us as a community. But the nice thing about the Greek language in which the New Testament is written is that the plural you and the singular you are spelled differently. And guess what? The vast majority of statements we find about Christians in the New Testament are in the plural you. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Can you guess if that's plural or singular? It's plural. Paul is saying, you all, y'all, together, are God's temple. God dwells in you, together. Likewise, Paul writes in Colossians verses three, verse three, chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you, plural, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your heart to God. Again, gathering for corporate worship in the New Testament, it's the assumption. It almost didn't even need to be taught. I think the apostles would, would frankly, balk at the kind of privatized and individualistic Christianity that we see so often today. It would be nonsensical to them to try and be Christian without the church. Yet this kind of thinking, it wasn't unheard of in the New Testament. For all we need to do is to read what the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, verse 25. Let us not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. But instead, let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day of Christ drawing near. See, God has always been seeking a corporate people to worship him. That was his aim in the Old Covenant. It was his aim. It is his aim in the New Covenant. And it is his aim in the new creation. Every time we gather, every time we do what we're doing this morning, do you know what we're doing? We are anticipating and illustrating the thing that is coming. What's coming? It's a corporate gathering in the new heavens and the new earth. We get a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, where the Apostle John writes this about a vision he saw. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
That right there is corporate worship, if I've ever seen it, right? God's goal in creation and in redemption and in recreation is that his people would gather together to worship him, period. And that's the primary reason that, that we come to living faith in order to worship as a body is because God wants it. He wants it. God gets glory in a unique way when his people come together to worship. One of the problems in the broader church today is that often we are not thinking about corporate worship as something that God wants of us. And instead, we are thinking about it in terms of whether or not we want it. What I mean is that it's very easy for us to treat worship as consumers. We can very easily make our decisions about participating or not participating in corporate worship based upon what we think we can or cannot get out of it and not based upon what God can get out of us. I want to remind us, brothers and sisters, that worship is it's not some product. It's not some leisure activity that we can reach for when we think we need it. Instead, historically, worship has been understood as a duty, as a holy obligation to a glorious God, something we fulfill as a privilege of following Christ. Now, I know that that word duty, it's a dirty word in many Protestant churches. We struggle to extricate that word duty from legalism and from work salvation. Now, at the same time, we, we tend to be fine with duties to our country and duties to our employers and duties to our families, but just not duties to God. God wouldn't want us to be dutiful. Now, let me say that speaking of corporate worship in this way, so long as uh, we're saying what I mean by duty, that's not legalism. Let me tell you why. I am not saying that you are loved by God and saved by going to church. That's heresy. What I am saying is that God cares about whether or not you worship him corporately. He absolutely cares. The thrust of the story of redemption is that you would gather with his people to worship. So of course it matters to God. What a duty does, what a duty speaks of, is the expectation of another. Corporate worship is a duty because God expects worship and because he's worthy of it. Remember, worship is for God. I want to suggest that it's, it's really important that we understand worship in this way because it will do a few important things for us, practically speaking. First of all, it will help us better prioritize our time. You see, perhaps more than any humans ever before us, we have all sorts of things that we could do in a given week. And it's the things that we see as duties that tend to go to the top of our list. If we lose the understanding of corporate worship as a duty, as an expectation of our relationship to God, we simply won't prioritize it. 
and many Christians do not. While sporadic involvement in your church, while it may help you succeed in not being a legalist, what it will also help you succeed in is placing a whole host of things in your schedules more important than God. Is that what God's after? Certainly not. A second thing that understanding worship as a duty helps us to see is that worship is not about our entertainment. It's about our vocation. As Anglicans, we worship liturgically. And this Greek word, liturgos, it means literally the work of the people. The work of the people. Again, corporate. Not the work of the individuals. The work of the people. Now, work We don't always understand work the way the Bible talks about work. Work is not the same as drudgery or boredom in our nine to five. No, work in God's economy is the stuff he made us to do. It's the fulfilling stuff. When we gather together, there's sacred work to be done. Whether or not we enjoy ourselves is secondary. What's utmost is that God is glorified in our worship. I want you to imagine Downton Abbey or some British period piece. Any fans out there? I know Christy and I are. I want you to pretend that I am a servant, maybe a butler, or even better, a valet. I like to say valet. Would I be a good valet? If I stayed in bed one morning because all I could think of was how I just don't get anything out of serving my master, wouldn't that be besides the point? See, I don't don't serve the master for me. I serve the master for the master. In the same way, we, we have to remember first and foremost that corporate worship is for God. The most important question on a Sunday morning, and in fact, every single day of the week, is not, do I want to worship today? It's, does God want my worship today? And the answer to that is always yes. Yes. Now, the second reason that we worship corporately is for us. Now, I know what you're thinking. I just told you, worship isn't for us, it's for God. So how can I say now that worship is for us? Well, it is, and it isn't. Here's what I mean. While worship is primarily for God, the God who is holy and glorious, it would be wrong of us, knowing the character of God, to come to worship not expecting to receive anything. Here's the beautifully mysterious thing about our God. In serving him, he serves us. Do you understand how ridiculous that is? How wild it is that the God of the universe would get on his hands and knees and wash the feet of his dirty disciples? In giving everything to God, he gives us more In return, in worshiping God, God gives us himself. 
Now, the reason is because God actually designed corporate worship to nourish us. It is to be our food and our drink. The Westminster Shorter Catechism of the Presbyterian Church, it poses this question. What is the chief end or purpose of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, personally, I'm not Presbyterian, but I don't think it's, I, don't, I think it's hard to say it any better than that. And so I'll gladly pull from their catechism. What this statement does First of all, it expresses this truth that worship is for God and that glorifying God is the chief vocation for which we were made. But here's what it also does. It also says that enjoying God, us enjoying God, is actually a part of that worship. And what this means is that while worship may in fact be a duty, it is at the same time a delight. It's a delight. When we worship God as God has made us to do, we end up experiencing the good things which God intended for us to experience when we worship Him together. There's a good reason why we refer to Sunday worship services as feasts or feast days. Who wouldn't want to go to a feast? Feasts are special occasions of corporate celebration, and therefore they are unlike any other time of the week. And they're meant to be days of delight. Days of delight. Because corporate worship is for us. When we come together as a body, we fellowship and we're built up. When we sing praises to God together, our spirits are lifted. When we hear God's word together, we are changed from the inside out. When we pray together, our hearts are encouraged. When we thank God together, we remember all of his goodness towards us and can see his goodness in the lives of others. When we forgive together, we are at peace with one another. When we give together, we receive from God in return. When we take communion together, we get to taste the goodness of God. When we come together to this place empty, we leave filled. All of those New Testament images for the church, the body of Christ, God's flock, God's temple, God's building, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, they all communicate this fact that we are meant to be together. Together. When we're not together, when we refuse to come, when we don't make it a priority, we are like amputated limbs. We are like straying sheep. We are like missing bricks from the wall. That is not God's purpose. God's purpose is that we would be together and we would delight in it. Corporate worship should bring to our heart the kind of delight that we see the psalmist has. In Psalm 84, listen to what he writes. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. For a day in your courts, O God, is better than a thousand elsewhere. Do we share that belief? Do we share that delight? 
Brothers and sisters, we are so selling ourselves short if we think that somehow corporate worship adds to the difficulties of our day or gets in the way of our rest time. Because quite the opposite, it relieves our difficulties and it ushers us into the Sabbath rest that God has prepared for us. Do you see that? See the beauty of this? While we have to be careful not to come to corporate worship thinking about what we are going to get out of God, at the same time, we should have the palpable expectation that when we leave, God will have provided all that we need. And when that happens, when we leave here with something from the Lord, guess what? We, we have another reason to come back and to do it again. And in that way, the life of a worshiper compounds. God gives to us, and thus we give back to God. And in giving to God, God gives to us, and thus we give back to God. And in giving to God, God gives back to us. And so we give to God. And on and on and on we go. Corporate worship is for God, and yet it is also for you. We might have think of worship simply in those terms. That it's something that, that we as God's people are doing with God and He with us. And if we do that, if we leave out one final group, we'll make a mistake. Here's the, here's the third thing. We worship corporately for the world. We worship corporately for the world. You see, our, our lives, they're not private. Our lives as believers are public. And that includes what and how often we worship. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your, plural, light shine before others so that they may see your, plural, good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All of us together are God's light. All of us together are a city on a hill and a lamp on a stand. And what that means is that our corporate worship, it's a public statement. Whether or not people see us worshiping will be noticed. Have you considered that? Our public worship needs to be a part of why we come. In Surge School, together, we are reading this book called The Symphony of Mission, and the book is built upon this image of what God is doing in the world as a symphony. The author suggests that God is like the composer of the music, and that the music that God composes is like the redemptive story of the gospel. The symphony, the orchestra, is like the church. It's comprised of a variety of individuals, but who all come together 
as a group and play the music as one. But there's one more group of people in this image, and it's the audience. Who's the audience? The audience is the world. You see, the church is meant to play the music of the gospel to a world that is desperate to hear it. Believers, when we come together in the church, what we're doing this morning, whenever it is that we gather for worship, what we are saying is, God is glorious and he's worthy. That's our public statement. Every time we gather, we are saying something. In fact, every time we don't gather, we are also saying something, not the thing that we wanted to say. God is calling us to gather for worship so that the world might see that Jesus Christ and his gospel are worthy of our time and worthy of our best energy and worthy of our devotion. When people drive by this building on Sunday or during the week and they see the parking lot full, what music of the gospel will they hear? Even more than that, when people follow the prompting of the Spirit and and enter this building, when they see our heart for worship and they feel the love and the compassion of God's people, how much more will they hear that gospel music? But if God's people aren't gathering, if God's people don't make it a priority, what will they hear? When we as believers are, are committed to the, to the rhythms and the lifestyle of corporate worship, we are offering in some way, not the only way that's needed, but in some way, a proclamation of the good news of the gospel. This is something that I, I personally I am praying that God would, would help me to live into more. That this is not a private event It's a public event. We are a light to the world. Corporate worship, it's for God. And corporate worship is for us. And in themselves, those are reasons enough to commit ourselves to it. Corporate worship is also for the world. And God desires, hear this, God desires that all the people of the world would gather to worship him. That's why we're here. That's why we worship. That's our call. Amen?